Okay. Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War of the Rent of Land. Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War of the Rent of Land. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War of the Rent of Land. Presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, 1776. This is the beginning of chapter 11 of the rent of land. And in this first part, I'm simply going to read what looks like the introduction. The chapter 11 is extremely lengthy. And due to my late start, I am simply going to read that and then see how much of the rest of it I can get into. But I will also go into the little book of economics as well as how money works because those are always shorter. And then later on, I'll get into the other parts. Hello, Zach. How are you? I see you down there. What's going on? So, all right. So this is the first part of the rent of land. And, you know, Zach, by the way, I actually saw um, or heard a little bit of, of Bide's room the other day. And... Um, it was interesting, some of the stuff that, um, the commentary that I hear about capitalism all the time, which is quite interesting, um, but I'll have to get into that later. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Um, and so this is just a short introduction to Up the Rental Land, and then I'm going to do a little book of uh, um, economics and then how money works. This is this whole course, my own a self-study course that I'm doing on what I call wealth attraction research um, that is inspired by one of my websites, exercisingyourmind.com, in which the subtitle actually says, great health is the truest of all wealth. And most of my authors and writers actually write on subjects about self-care for entrepreneurs and people who are are building business rather than very specific um, business building or wealth building strategies. But um, it's worth a read checking out some of that stuff. Um, but for now, this is just a quick reading of, of The Wealth of Land, um, the intro to it, which is Chapter 11 in Wealth of Nations. And then I'm going to move right along into the little book of economics, as well as um, how money works. And I have all the recordings on Spreaker and Wisdom that if anybody wants to go back and listen to those, I know it's boring. It's about money and economics and finance and capitalism, the evils of it all, right? All right, so anyway, here, let's take this chapter 11 of the rent of land. Rent, considered as the price paid for the use of land, is naturally the highest which the tenant can afford to pay in the actual circumstances of the land. In adjusting the terms of the lease, 
the landlord endeavors to leave him no greater share of the produce than what is sufficient to keep up the stock from which he furnishes the seed, pays the labor, and purchases and maintains the cattle and other instruments of husbandry together with the ordinary profits of farming stock in the neighborhood. This is evidently the smallest share with which the tenant can content himself without being a loser, and the landlord seldom needs to leave him any more. Whatever part of the produce, or what is the same thing, whatever part of its price is over and above this share, he naturally endeavors to reserve to himself as the rent of his land, which is evidently the highest the tenant can afford to pay in the actual circumstances of the land. Sometimes, indeed, the liberality, more frequently the ignorance of the landlord, makes him accept of somewhat less than his, his portion, and sometimes, too, though more rarely, uh, though more rarely, the ignorance of the tenant makes him undertake to pay somewhat more, or to content himself with somewhat less than the ordinary profits of farming stock in the neighborhood. This portion, however, may still be considered as the natural rent of land, or the rent for which it is naturally meant that the land should be, or that the land should, for the most part, be let. <clears throat> There's some... He's so detailed in his explanations of some of the simplest things. I mean, basically, he's just saying here that um, sometimes, because of the... Basically, sometimes the landlord doesn't know how much his property is worth, and therefore he gets paid less rent. And sometimes he gets paid more because the tenant is ignorant. That's what you know. That's basically what he said in that whole giant paragraph. Um, continuing, the rent of land, it may be thought, is frequently no more than a reasonable profit or interest for the stock laid out by the landlord upon its improvement. This, no doubt, may be partly the case upon some occasions, for it can scarce ever be more than partly the case. Hmm, wait a minute, this might be another word, party. It's P-A-R-D-Y, then party the case. I'm, if it's either a typo or not, I'm going to have to check on that. I don't think it is, but because, you know, the, there's different language used. So I'm going to have to check and see what do they mean, party. Because it, it's either a typo for partly, or it's um, or it's actually uh, a word that I'm not sure. What did I just type in here? This is so weird. Oh, oh my gosh! Looking for a definition in uh, in in uh, what is that thing? Google's. Um, I started check, check, typing it in Google Maps instead of just Google. That's really ridiculous. All right, party. Let's see. Party. Um, interjections. Archaic. Okay. That I know. Party in American English. Adverbial. Interjection. Uh, a familiar minced oath formerly much in use. Huh. Interjection. Party. Obsolete form of party. Uh, hmm. Literally by God, huh. indeed. What is party? Party meaning definition? Uh, minced oath. Well, let's see. 
the rent of land, it may be thought, is frequently no more than a reasonable profit or interest for the stock laid out by the landlord upon its improvement. Huh. The profit, more than a reasonable profit. Whenever that term is used, no more than a reasonable profit or interest. See, this is the only case in which um, any, any revenue is generated outside of normal income, which, is, which are called wages, um, in which there is a section earlier in the book where he basically says that landlords don't do any work at all but expect to get paid most. And um, it's, it's quite telling, though, especially when in the previous chapter how he really rails against the interference of the state in these affairs. Hmm. Uh, this is no doubt may be partly the case upon some occasions for it can scarce ever be more than party the case hmm. I'm going to have to skip over that because I can't put that definition in there right now the landlord demands a rent for unimproved land true the landlord demands a rent even for unimproved land and the supposed interest or profit upon the expense of improvement is generally an addition to this original rent the interest or profit upon the expense of improvement is generally an addition to this original rent so whatever expense somebody is pays out for the improvement is an addition to this rent Either, well, it depends on who's doing that, right? If the person who's renting is doing improvement, it's, a, it's an expense upon them. If the landlord does it, it's an expense upon them, and therefore the renter, the tenant, will be paying the rent to the landlord for the improvements if the, if the landlord does the improvements. And then maybe it might be subtracted from the rent if the tenant does the improvements. But let's continue my speculation here. Those improvements besides are not always made by the stock of the landlord. Yep, that's just what I said. But sometimes by that of the tenant. Okay, good. I'm understanding this. <laughs> when the lease comes to be renewed, however, the landlord commonly demands the same augmentation of rent as if they had been all made by his own. Ah, yes. That's interesting, right? There, there we go. See, that's the trick. This is crazy. When the lease comes to be renewed, however, the landlord commonly demands the same augmentation of rent as if they had been all made by his own. So whether or not, like in the previous part says, the improvements are not always made by the stock of the landlord, but sometimes by that of the tenant. But when the lease comes to be renewed, however, the landlord commonly demands the same augmentation of rent as if they referring to the improvements, had all been made by his, the landlord's own. So even if the tenant put the improvements on there and then left, and there's another lease being renewed by someone else, then he might charge more rent because there, those improvements are on his property. Slick old landlords. He sometimes demands rent for what is altogether incapable of human, human improvement. Kelp is a species of seaweed which, when burnt, 
yields an alkaline salt useful for making glass, soap, and for several other purposes. It grows in several parts of Great Britain, particularly in Scotland, upon such rocks only as lie within the high water mark, which are twice every day covered with the sea, and of which the produce, therefore, was never augmented by human industry. The landlord, however, whose estate is bounded by a kelp shore of this kind, demands a rent for it as much as for his cornfields. How fascinating. So, again, so even if <laughs> there are improvements on there, which, as he laid it out quite, quite clearly, that the, the kelp is a species of seaweed which, when burnt, yields an alkaline salt useful for making glass, soap, and several other purposes. And previously said it, he sometimes demands rent for what is altogether incapable of human improvement. So people aren't doing that, right? But he'll charge rent for that anyway. And the, and the landlord, however, whose estate is bound by a kelp shore of this kind, demands a rent for it as much as for his cornfields. Because, of course, if the tenant can make a profit off of it, why not the landlord? That's what it is basically saying here. Gosh, I wish I would have marked that section earlier when he really just went in about um, landlords not making anything. When I get back and start reviewing the book, there's definitely going to be some highlighting going on there's some really good stuff that I'll put a summary together. All right, so let's see. Continuing, the sea in the neighborhood of the islands of Shetland is more than commonly abundant in fish, which makes a great part of the subsistence of their inhabitants. But in order to profit by the produce of the water, they must have a habitation upon the neighboring land. Hmm. The rent of the landlord is in proportion not to what the farmer can make by the land, but to what he can make both by the land and by the water. It is partly paid in sea fish, and one of the very few instances in which rent makes a part of the price of that commodity is to be found in that country. The rent of land, therefore, considered as the price paid for the use of the land, is naturally a monopoly price. It is not at all proportion to what the landlord may have laid out upon the improvement of the land, or to what he can afford to take, but to what the farmer can afford to give. Wow. And landlords really get a, they, they get a steal in this whole deal here. Hmm. Where the, whether the price is or is not more depends upon the demand, of course. If there's scarce land there's, and there's more demand for it, of course it's going to be um, higher. And if it's there's too much land and people don't need it or there's not enough people wanting to rent, it's going to be lower. There are some parts of the produce of land for which the demand must always be such as to afford a greater price than what is sufficient to bring them to market. And there are others for which it either may or may not be such as to afford this greater price. The former must always afford a rent to the landlord. The latter sometimes may and sometimes may not according to different circumstances. Rent is to be observed, therefore enters into the composition of the price of commodities in a different way from wages and profit. High or low wages and profit are the causes of high or low price. High or low rent is the effect of it. It is because high or low wages and profit must be paid in order to bring a particular commodity to market that its price is high or low. But it is because its price is high or low a great deal more 
or very little more or no more than what is sufficient to pay those wages and profit that it affords a high rent or a low rent or no rent at all. Once again, it is because high or low wages and profit must be paid in order to bring a particular commodity to market that its price is high or low, but it is because its price is high or low a great deal more or very little more or no more than what is sufficient to pay those wages and profit that it affords a high rent or a low rent or no rent at all. The particular consideration first of those parts of the produce of land which always afford some rent, secondly of those which sometimes may and sometimes may not afford rent, and thirdly of the variations which in the different periods of improvement naturally take place in the relative value of those two different sorts of rude produce when compared both with one another and with manufactured commodities will divide this chapter into three parts so the particular consideration first of those parts of the produce of the land which always afford some rent Good. so the particular consideration first of those parts of the produce of the land which always affords some rent. We always can be charged, the landlord can always charge rent for that. Secondly, of those which sometimes may and sometimes may not afford rent. So there are things that the landlord may or may not get rent for, so those are the iffy things. And thirdly, of the variations which, in the different periods of improvement, naturally take place in the relative value of those two different sorts of food produce when compared both with one another and with manufactured commodities, we'll divide this chapter into three parts. Okay, so, right. So then there are also different periods of improvement, right? That's either putting equipment on the land or different things that they'll do to it in order to change or augment, as they say, whether or not some of those things that may or may not afford rent, right? Because it's variations in which in the different periods of improvement that naturally take place. In the different periods of improvement, naturally take place in the relative value of those two different sorts of rude produce. Yeah, the two different sorts. First, the parts of the produce of the land which always affords some rent. And then secondly, those which may or may not. So it's the it's the um, the different sorts of rude produce that take place in the relative value of those two different sorts. Hmm. You know, it's so interesting, too, how looking at this, all of this stuff is still, I mean, Adam Smith is still being represented, spoken of, and talking about in in the, the newest books. I mean, I have the little book of economics here, um, which is 2020, it's the second edition of it, as well as How Many Works, which is 2017, and he's still sprinkled throughout that book. Um, his ideas and everything else that I'm, I've been looking at as well, even stuff that people call conspiracy theory, like Babylon's banksters and um, several other books that are talking about money and finance, including all of Robert Kiyosaki's books. I can see the influence of Adam Smith throughout all of it. I mean, this might as well be some kind of spell book. I mean, how did a single person write this book and it still to this very day basically controls the entire world of what's known as free market capitalism and every other type of capitalism there is that some people call crony capitalism or corporate capitalism which in my opinion are the different the effects oh yeah so affirmative okay book in college what's up yeah, and he or rather thanks um 
appreciate the commentary. I'm looking at that here. Uh, Bob, checking out the comments. Um, brings to mind the term, what the market will bear. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the father of modern economics, definitely. I mean, it's... But, you know, I make a distinction, though, because a lot of people get upset about capitalism, Bob, and um, they really uh, don't, I don't think, make a distinction that it's, that there, there's different types, and that just because something calls itself capitalism doesn't necessarily mean that it's even in the way that Adam Smith imagined. Because I look at the way that, in this book, and he basically, he just tells it like it is, for the most part. Um, he doesn't pull any punches in a lot of the things that he says. Um, and, I mean, he's, he really just, like, I mean, in the previous chapter that I was reading, he really just kind of talks about how unnecessary it is for a lot of the, um, the, the, in, the influence. He talks about a very particular um, problem with apprenticeships and the, the state, which, which is the, um, the policy of Europe. And so, I mean, like right here in one part, he says, three years in Scotland is in Scotland a common term of apprenticeship, even in some very nice trades. And in general, I know of no country in Europe in which corporation laws are so little oppressive, right? Because he says, uh, I mean, he talks about that often, about the oppressiveness of, of the different in positions like this is inequalities occasioned by the policy of Europe. See, the the world that Adam lived in isn't a thing anymore. No, definitely not. But um, even it not being a thing anymore, this is still the operative manual by which um, the entire world seems to be running by for the most part. I mean, the details of of marketing and sales and economics and and uh, all of the details I'm looking at show themselves in various different places in practice. <clears throat> and that's what's very interesting. So, I mean, yeah, 1776, definitely a completely different world that uh, he's living in. So, and then I'm going to see what happens here next. Because I'm going to go into now, because they're short, um, and and get those things out of the way because eventually I'm just going to be reading Wealth of Nations. These other two books are much shorter and this is actually going to help because I'm not going to go into part one uh, which is of the produce of land which always affords rent. I'm going to look in these other two books and just see because I always find something similar from these two there. So this is the next part when my coin spin. Alright, you're listening to Wealth Attraction Research W-A-R of the rent of land started off with an introduction to chapter 11 by adam smith but now i'm going to look into um the little book of economics and uh yesterday i read from here or the previous one i read from here wait a minute oh no i'm not there yet i'm not borrowing out tax later i'm actually in a part called supply creates its own demand gluts in market because yesterday I read meetings of merchants end in conspiracies to raise prices, cartels, and collusion. And that was very enlightening as well. I, I See, I was 
one of these people that didn't know that um, that a cartel, and I should have, because I always talk about how people are, are ignorant in the fact that the word, for example, manipulate is not a negative word necessarily. It means to handle with skill and care. The word arrogant doesn't have to be um, negative either. It means to claim for one's own. The word propaganda also doesn't have to be negative. It simply means to to disseminate far and wide, right? But you know, we have it used in a certain ways. So neither is um, the word cartel necessarily, even though, I mean, I'm still kind of on the fence about it because it even in that previous thing, it says that, um, that collaborations between producers have existed for as long as there have been markets and businesses in many areas of commerce have formed associations to their mutual benefit. Right? And it says, this sort of cooperation between firms is known by economists as collusion, right? The, the price fixing, fixing that results makes market le markets less efficient. And then here it goes mentioning Adam Smith. Scottish economist Adam Smith recognized the importance of self-interest in free markets, but was suspicious enough of the motives of suppliers to warn, and this is actually what I read in that section yesterday, to warn, quote, People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for the merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. Right? And the part I'm talking about, the word cartel, is because in the U.S. in the 19th century, these restrictive or monopolistic practices were known as trusts. But the word cartel is now used to describe such collaboration which operate on a national or international level. The word has gained a negative connotation despite being a notable feature of the German and U.S. economies in the 1920s and 1930s. In the 20th century, the U.S. and the European Union used legislation to discourage collusion. However, cartels among producers remain a feature of market economies. Yeah, so, I mean, there's some interesting stuff about that, and I... So I'm still kind of on the fence, but that's just rather fascinating about that. But let me continue here. This is a very short part of um, the little book of economics. So this is the next part. I thought I was only going to read uh, that introduction, but it's short, and I'm still under, way under an hour, not even 30 minutes yet, and these, these will be quick. So in my little uh, self-learning series for my Hypnoathletics University and Wealth Attraction Research, making my my live notes. I will continue here with the little book of economics and the section is called supply creates its own demand, gluts in markets. So in context, the focus is the macro economy. Key thinker is Jean-Baptiste Say, uh, Say, or Say, I don't know how to pronounce it in French. He was born 1767 and died supposedly 1832. Before him, in 1820, British economist, Thomas Malthus argues that underemployment and overproduction can occur. So, of course, we know that. After his time of Jean-Baptiste Say, uh, in 1936, John Maynard Keynes states that supply does not create its own demand. It is possible for a lack of demand to cause production to slow, creating unemployment. Interesting. He states that supply does not create its own demand. Hmm. So even if there's a good supply of stuff like that, no, of course not, right? The demand has to come first. Yeah, that does make sense. Well, I mean, if you think about some of the stuff that, um, what's his name? Uh, he says, uh, who, who, who gentleman 
was the one who said, um, uh, talks about the manufacturing, cons- oh, it's Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, right? Uh, yeah, some of the context has changed, and yet the ideas governing haven't yet. Do you see where he contradicted Smith? Oh, are you talking about, um, who, who's that, uh, Bob, who contradicted Smith? Um, in which part, when I was reading um, in the previous part where he mentions Adam Smith in the section about um, the cartel, so let's see, the price fixing that results makes markets less efficient. Scottish economist Adam Smith recognized the importance of self-interest in free markets, but was suspicious enough of the motive of suppliers to warn people of the same trade, sell them meet together, even for the merriment of vision for the conversation. Yeah, this is known. The price fixing that results makes these markets less efficient. Oh, just about what are you saying? Just about cartels? Oh yeah, yeah. I did, I did see that where he did contradict Smith. Yeah. Um, because he says that it, it makes markets less efficient. But Adam Smith is, is saying that they have a contrivance to raise prices, which for them, it makes the market efficient for them. I don't know if that's what you mean. Because Smith is saying that, and I even read it in Wealth of Nations coincidentally at the same time as I was reading this. But yeah, the, um, there's lots of contradictions of stuff about that Adam Smith talks about in these texts that are completely different than what he said because of course you're correct um that uh you know the time the you know the world that adam lived in you know isn't a thing anymore so yeah that's definitely for sure of course all right so let's look at these um what's what is it says oh gosh they keep on mentioning adam smith they just can't get off of off of him here, here it is again so after that right so after um so, 1936, John Maynard Keene states that supply does not create its own demand. It is possible for a lack of demand to cause production to slow, creating unemployment. Right. So, people aren't buying stuff, of course, as we know, right? Um, then companies may decide to lay off because they're like, hey, we're not selling as much. Let's lay off some people. In 1950, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises argues that Keene's denial is at the basis of Keynesian fallacies about economics. Hmm. And in 2010, Australian economist Stephen Cates defends Say's law and calls Keynesian economics a conceptual disease. Huh. Interesting. Well, here we go again, back to the master Adam Smith. Uh, Bob, let's check this out. Oh, hello over on Wisdom. Hello, Caleb. Caleb Brown, Cash, John, uh, the Sister Crystal Show. Hello, hello, Zoe. Hello, Cecilia Grace, and hello, Mr. Christopher Birkenbein. Welcome, welcome. Um, all right, so yeah, wow. The, here, they, here they go about Adam Smith again. They just can't let go of this guy. I mean, I'm I'm very glad that I have Wealth of Nations to reference as the foundation for so much of this stuff because it's just a he's a common figure over all of this. So, in 1776, when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, he noted that merchants around him commonly felt there were two reasons why business failed. A scarcity of money or overproduction. He debunked the first of these myths, which um, is the scarcity of money, right? 
um, by explaining the role of money in an economy. But it was left to a, a later French economist, Jean-Baptiste Say, to dismiss the second overproduction. Hmm. His 1803 work, A Treatise on Political Economy, is devoted to explaining the impossibility of overproduction. Say claimed that as soon as a product is made, it creates a market for other products to the full extent of its own value. I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. Just because something is made, it creates a market. I mean, unless you're talking about um, in Komsky and manufacturing of consent, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You have a bunch of dog shit. Bob, like, what is your dog pooping? Did you put, scoop him up in bags? I bet you if you put him in some nice bags, you can probably sell it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's hilarious, right? Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that, that just because something is created, it, it creates a market. But but then again, I mean, that's with the technology and advertising and marketing, you can manufacture consent, right? Um, the, so, so, yeah, I mean, automatically, I mean, I think that, of course, um, obviously production, yeah, production isn't demand, of course, yeah, obviously production isn't demand. That's, that's, cre that's just creating supply with the expectation that you can manipulate the markets to take the shit, right, Bob? So, um, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Because look, right, like you, your dog produced shit, right? Poop. Production isn't demand. Nobody's saying, nobody's demanding dog poop necessarily. I mean, there might be somewhere, somebody might think that it's like the best fertilizer somewhere. But, you know, but that just the fact that your dog is pooping is not itself <laughs> demand. Yeah. All right, so um, Jean-Baptiste say he dismissed the second, right, which is that um, that overproduction. He dismissed overproduction. So he says um, it is possible for a lack of demand to cause production to slow, creating unemployment. Right, I would, I would agree with that part. Right? Of course, that if people aren't demanding things, like people aren't buying stuff. Like if, when people get scared in an economy where there's um, inflation and... Um, depression or um, you know when people don't have as much buying power then they won't be buying as much stuff obviously and so therefore people are going to be getting laid off and that continues a cycle that's really crazy how that happens right people aren't buying so people get start getting fired and then then less people can buy it's so freaking crazy of course that's why you know we got titles of the books like uh you know robert kiyosaki's you know why the rich get richer um and fake fake uh, money fake teachers fake assets why lies are making the poor and middle class poor. right so all right let's continue here so say claim that as soon as a product is made it creates a market for other products to the full extent of its own value. This means, for example, that the money a tailor receives when he makes and sells a shirt it is then used to buy bread from the baker and beer from the brewer. Say believed that people had no desire to hoard money, and therefore the total value of commodities supplied would equal the total value of goods demanded. Yeah, that's a little crazy of an idea to me. The common expression of of what is known as Say's Law has become supply creates its own demand. Yeah, that's, well, that's artificial. Of course, like, 
you were commenting on earlier, Bob, right, uh, is that definitely supply doesn't create its own demand. A little bit of an interesting idea. But in fact, Say never used this phrase. It was probably coined in 1921 by the U.S. economist Fred Taylor in his Principles of Economics. The idea was important to Say. Yeah, exactly. There has to be a value first, which is the demand. People have to want that, right? Thanks, Bob. So the idea was important to say because if supply creates an equal demand of value, there can never be overproduction or gluts in the economy as a whole. Right. Of course, firms could mistake the level of demand for a commodity and overproduce. But as the Austrian-born U.S. economist Ludwig von Mises later said, the bungling entrepreneur would soon be driven from that market by losses. That's, that's right, of course. And the unemployed resources would be reallocated to more profitable areas of the economy. Exactly. In fact, it is impossible to overproduce overall because human wants are far greater than our ability to produce, con- to, to produce commodities. Hmm. Well, most of that I would agree with. It is impossible to overproduce. I don't know about that. See, the, yeah, it's no longer true. Like, think about this, right? Look at how lots of supermarkets throw away food, for example, or restaurants in general, or so many places just have stuff just sitting around for so long, not doing anything, not being employed, as they say, right? So, you know, and, and this is a problem that some people are trying to address in, in various different small pockets of, um, you know, different kind of activists who are going and finding those um, near expiration foods or going to, um, they're opening up soup kitchens and things like that that take that nearly expired food and, and cooking it and serving it on the day to people who need it. So, yeah, this is this is crazy. Human wants are far greater than our ability to produce commodities. Yeah, definitely no longer true. Say's Law has become a forum, but you see, they're just so this is book this book remembers 2020 it was first published 2012 so I'm going to continue and see what their what their commentary on all of this is so um, <clears throat> says uh, says law has become a forum for conflict between the classical and the Keynesian economists yeah I mean do you want to come up and and say something or do you want to just um, type it in the chats Bob because your question is, mind if I have a point to the giant hole in Smith and therefore all economic thinkers since? I mean, sure, if you want to. Okay, you'll type it? All right. I'm going to keep reading while you type that up, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it here for the people on Wisdom to hear and also for anybody who's only able to listen to the talk here on call as well. All right, so, and uh, looking over to, all right, so... Say's Law has become a forum for conflict between the classical and the Keynesian uh, economists. The former, such as Say, believe that production, or the supply side of the economy, is the most important factor in growing an economy. Keynesians argue that growth comes only with increased demand. I would agree with Keynes in that particular respect, maybe not everything else. Because I don't really know too much about Keynes yet, because again, this is the... I'm in my infancy of this type of um, economic research. A lot of things are intuitive, of course, but I'm just learning more of the terminology and the key players throughout. 
Okay, let's take a look at what Bob said. The assumption that the economy is made up of, made up of rational actors. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Uh, are you sure that he... Uh, I mean, that's not his entire point, though. I mean, yeah, uh, he does say that in some places, and then he talks about the invisible hand, and that people, um, because due to their self-interest, um, that they actually uh, uplift the society um, unintentionally more than if they were to actually try to do things to uplift society. Um, and that that's the that's the um, the extent of of what they need to do in order to make the economy grow. Value maximization is not why we buy things. No, of course not. Um, I don't think so either. I'm going to look at those things in concert with each other in just a minute. I'm almost done with this chapter. Just It's almost done, and then they have like a, a spotlight on Jean-Baptiste to say. But if anything else you have to write in there, Bob, I'd love to see it because I appreciate your input. So why keep the money in his 1936 masterpiece <laughs> the general theory of employment john maynard Keynes attacked say's law focusing on the role of money within the economy say had suggested that all money earned is spent on purchasing other commodities in other words the economy works as if it were based on a system of barter i mean there's some truth to that yeah, I mean, because why else are people getting money? And even that's even in the first place when, when uh, Wealth of Nations opened up and several other books, right, talking about, um, about money and a division of labor, right? There's a there's there's a whole section in Wealth of Nations about um, how and my, why money came about, right? The origin and use of money, the origin and use of money, and it's basically a way to to barter things, but without having to carry a bunch of goods and services to different places. Like, I really like the example, for example, I like the example, for example, for example, for example, like, 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 I know. So I, I appreciate the example that he used, which was if, for example, someone wanted to, to uh, barter a cow for somebody else's wheat, but the person's wheat was already harvested and they met with the person who had the cows, but the cow's not full grown yet. Then he would issue him a promissory note, piece of paper, like money to say, you know, here's this note. Thanks for the wheat. I'll give you this piece of paper and this piece of paper that you can bring to me later when my cow is full grown and then I can give it to you. Right. So it's still bartering, but that's just a, a way to to offset certain things like the time differences and when certain commodities are ready. And for, um, in if they can't be carried from one place to another as readily just yet, so they can both meet each other and say, "Hey, um, here's a here's this piece of paper that says you can have this much wheat, and here's a piece of paper that says you can have this much, this many cows, and then later on, you know, you can go get them when you can get your people together to get it, or however they arrange it." But so of course, yeah, the. It's a system of bar bartering. Okay, so Say had suggested that all money earned is spent on purchasing other commodities. In other words, the economy works as if it were based on a system of barter. Keynes, however, suggested that people might sometimes hold money for reasons other than buying goods or buying goods. They might, for instance, want to save some of their income. <coughs> Excuse me. They might, for instance, want to save 
some of their income. If these savings were not borrowed by others, such as through a bank, and invested in the economy as capital for running a business, perhaps, the money would no longer be circulating. As people hold onto their money, demand for goods eventually becomes lower than the value of the goods produced. Hmm. Demand for goods becomes lower than the value of the goods produced. This state of negative demand is known as demand deficiency, and Keynes said it would lead to pervasive unemployment. Well, yeah, I mean, again, that's really simple, but this is oversimplifying. All right, I'm going to look at, I'm going to finish this real quick and look at your comments, Bob. Given the dire state of the world economy during the Great Depression of the early 1930s, Keynes' argument seemed to be a powerful one, especially when contrasted with a world based on Say's Law, which said that unemployment would only occur in some industries for a short time. This is worth examining a little bit more later, but let's take a look here. Jean-Baptiste Say, this is the end of this here in uh, the Little Book of Economics. So we have the son of a French... Protestant textile merchant. Jean-Baptiste Say was born in Lyon. Is it Lyon? Lyon? I'm going to say that. I'm just going to pretend like I know what I'm, how I pronounce French. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Say was born in Lyon, France in 1767. At the age of 18, he moved to England, where he spent two years apprenticed to a merchant before returning to Paris to work at an insurance company. He welcomed the French Revolution of 1789, both for its ending the religious persecution of Protestant Huguenots and for, or Huguenots, right, and for its removal of an essentially feudal economy, opening up more prospects for commerce. In 1794, Say became editor of a political magazine in which he promoted the ideas of Adam Smith. In 1799, he was invited to join the French government. But Napoleon rejected some of his views, and Say's work was censored until 1814. During this time, he made a fortune by setting up a cotton factory. In his later years, he lectured on economics in Paris. He died after a series of strokes in 1832, aged 66. At least he got that far. Uh, His key works are... Key works are in 1803, A Treatise on Political Economy. 1815, England and the English, and in 1828, Complete Course of Practical Political Economy. All right, there is Jean-Baptiste Say, and let me just take a look here before I move on to how money works um, at uh, what Bob's comments are here. So I'm going to go back to the beginning, and those of you on Wisdom, Hello Wandering Fool, uh, C.H. Andrew Johnson, Swan, uh, some of you guys said hello already to welcome to the room in wisdom. Uh, okay, so let's see what Bob has to say here. So first of all, he said he asked if he could, if I mind, if he points out to the whole in Smiths and therefore all economic thinkers since. Um, he says that the assumption that the economy is made up of rational actors, I would agree with that definitely. Value maxim- maximization is not why we buy things. Hmm. I'll have to think about that. We and then he says we buy things because we need them. And the act of buying makes us feel good. Well, that's, those two things may not be so obvious to people. Maybe the first one, need. But most people uh, talk about need even when um, they're buying things that make them feel good. So sometimes those things get conflated. Sometimes people buy things that make them feel good even though they don't need them. 
but they're buying them anyway. And then, let's see, he essentially assumes that individuals run their personal lives like companies do, or if they don't, they should. And on both points, he is dead wrong. I don't know. Well, I actually, I actually kind of agree with that in some ways. Um, not that you're correct that he assumes that individuals run their personal lives like companies do, um, or if they don't, they should. In a lot of ways, I feel like people should. In a lot of ways, and you said on both points he is dead wrong. I don't, I don't complete. I, I don't think that's entirely accurate, because I find that running my life like a company, in a lot of ways, is very. Um, well, of course, there is more to life, Bob, but that's how you get more out of life by being efficient, and running certain things like a company, like the essential things. Would you agree that it's important for a person to keep a budget, right, to make and plan how people spend their money um, in order to maximize? Okay, so there is more to life, and to a company, there isn't. But things like maximizing how much money you're able to hold on to for the things that you really want rather than giving into impulse buying, because right? even you said earlier, right, you, you wrote that we buy things because we need them, correct? Right. But and the act of buying makes us feel good. Well, a lot of people are spending a lot more money than they should because they're buying things that makes them feel good, just like how a lot of people can't control what they eat. And so therefore they become overweight and unhealthy because they're eating because they, it makes them feel good and not because they're they're not eating. They're not eating to live. A lot of people are living to eat. And in the same way, they're they're not earning to live. Right. Because I like to come the story. Or the title of a book called Make a Life, Not Just a Living, right? But there are several things that you can do operating in such a, in a similar way to how a business does with budgeting and planning and things like that for the things that you really want. Like I, in a way, run my life like that every day, but so that I can get more out of life. Like, for example, um, I have a motor mouth and I like to talk and I like to share ideas with a lot of people. So I make sure that um, that from the time I wake up, which is usually around anywhere between 11 a.m. and 1 in the afternoon, that I can spend time going to the gym, um, going to the beach, and spending time at the bookstore, right? And because I love to read. And so in, in order to do that, I plan and I budget, and then I know that when I'm going to work, that it's when the bookstores close or when I can't explore them anymore or hang out and do stuff like that because most things are closing, I still know that people need transportation so I can drive Uber. And at that time, before I do that, I spend an hour uh, making sure the scheduling for my cleaning business and for my self-defense program, everything's straight and I don't have any issues with that. Or checking in with my authors who um, write for my website and making sure that that I've published everything on time or edited the articles and so on and so forth. Or even things like today, like I, I forgot to um, to pay uh, the hosting fee for my website. So when I went on there, it was offline and I, and I had to go do take care of that, you know. So there are <clears throat> different things like that um, that I um, enjoy doing that by budgeting and planning, it makes it simpler. And I think of it in a business-like way, but let's see what you got to say. The market is driven by demand. Demand fuels growth. Therefore, growth is driven by consumption. Yes. You were just saying that you want to, you won't buy this to buy that. 
The market is driven by demand. Demand fuels growth, therefore growth is driven by consumption. Besides, you are saying that you won't buy this to buy that. But in some ways, right? I mean, companies do that. They don't buy certain things because they want to buy something else. But you, you had some really good points, Bob, and I'd really like to talk to you about this too because you seem to be um, a very, you have a lot of insight onto this and um, and it would be good to get some more of your ideas on this. The more we produce, the more jobs we have. Hmm. Well, I mean, yes, in the producing of the stuff, you need people to produce it, so therefore you can hire people to produce. But I don't know how far that can go without it busting itself open. Um, because then people need to buy that. And then again, as has been pointed out, if there's nobody, if there's no demand for those things that are produced, then, you know, eventually people are going to be unemployed by the places that are producing that because they no longer need them to produce because nobody's buying it. But um, let's, uh, the more jobs, yes, more disposable income, of course. Well, yes. But see, that's the problem too, where if, People aren't, and this is so crazy, right? About this part of the supply and demand. This is where I have to start to fill in those gaps. So I appreciate you pointing those things out. I'm going to finish off now with um, the most boring part of my reading that I do want to get done, and I should be able to get it done in this last five minutes. Coming up on an hour, it doesn't. It's not so bad if I go a little bit more than an hour, but I'd rather um, finish this up. Did my bookmark fall out of here? All right, where, what section did I read yesterday? So, um, oh, yes, so I read bonds yesterday. I think that's where I left off, bonds. Oh, no, 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 I, I read derivatives yesterday. And, okay, good. So now I'm at the section called financial markets in how money works. And this is how I'm going to finish off here. But, yeah, um, Bob, do you see how closely, well, I read a little bit of Adam Smith. I didn't read a much, a, a whole lot of it today, but... The little book of economics, they, I mean, they draw on his work over and over and over and over again so much. And that would be interesting to see how, um, you know, I, I, I'm interested in your comment that you said earlier that, um, that the, a giant hole in Smith and therefore all economic thinkers since. Because that's an interesting thing to, 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 to say, right? Um that the basically the the person who's influenced all economic thinkers um, has a big gaping hole in it, and which could be the big problem, right? And what if we can find a solution there, somewhere in there? Which I know that there are plenty of them, but it's another story for another day. I'm going to finish off here now with um, uh, the book How Many Works. I'm going to give my point a little spin here. So, Wealth Attraction Research, WAR. This is called Of the Rent of Land, beginning chapter 11 of Adam Smith's book, Wealth of Nations. But I continued, I continued with the Little Book of Economics and now finishing off here with uh, How Money Works. So we're talking about financial markets. Ooh, so exciting. The flow of money around the world is essential for business is essential for businesses to operate and grow. Stock the hell, Uber notifications. Stock markets are places where individual investors and corporations can trade currencies, invest in companies, and arrange loans. Without the global financial markets, governments would not be able to borrow money. Whatever. 
<laughs> Companies would not have access to the capital they need to expand bullshit, and investors and individuals would be unable to buy and sell foreign country currencies. What are they trying to sell here? All right. Sorry, folks. I, I, my, my opinions, my emotions just got the best of me when I'm reading this. It's just like, is this, is this, is this, is this for real? The flow of money around the world is essential for businesses to operate and grow. Yeah, that's true. Stock markets are places where individual investors and corporations can trade currencies, invest in companies, and arrange loans. Again, true. That's what's happening. Without the global financial markets, governments would not be able to borrow money. That's not entirely accurate. Companies would not have access to the capital they need to expand. Again, not entirely accurate. And investors and individuals would be unable to buy and sell foreign currencies. That's also... It's like they it's like they said two things in the beginning that were true and then expected us to just accept the rest of what they're saying. But I must continue. Financial markets in action. Thanks to the global financial markets, money flows around the world between investors, businesses, customers, and stock markets. Investors are not restricted to placing their money within companies in the country where they live, and big businesses now have international offices, so money needs to move efficiently between countries and continents. It is also important for the growth of the global economy that people are able to invest money outside their domestic markets. All right, whatever. All true, okay. Inside the stock exchange, let's take a look. What happens inside the stock exchange? Buying and selling occurs in real time and prices change by the second. Brokers trade shares, also known as stocks, bonds, commodities, raw materials, and specialty financial products such as futures and options. Oh boy. <clears throat> Buyers specify which share or asset to buy at what price and in what volume. Remember, this is still inside the stock exchange. Investors buy via brokers who set prices and make commission on sales. When shares are easy to buy and sell, the market is said to be liquid. When there are fewer buyers and sellers, the market is said to be illiquid. A stock is known by its ticker, usually a shortened version of its trading name. And uh, we got some folks here buying and selling, buying shares or options. Investors study data to decide whether to buy or sell financial assets. Data is updated regularly to reflect changes in supply and demand. There's, there's all that supply and demand stuff again, right? Okay, continuing. Financial markets around the world. New York, U.S., the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, is the largest in the world. Market capitalization in the market value of its outstanding shares, $14.14 trillion, followed by the NASDAQ, which is also based in New York, at $5.63 trillion. That's significantly less. So the New York Stock Exchange, the market value of its outstanding shares is $14.14 trillion, followed by the NASDAQ, which is also based in New York, at $5.63 trillion. That's a big difference. Toronto, Canada. The Toronto Stock Exchange, TSE, in Canada is run by the TMX Group, $1.45 trillion. This is not going in, in valuation order. We have Tokyo, Japan. 
The Japan Exchange Group, JPX, based in Tokyo, is the largest exchange in Asia, $3.73 trillion. China. China has three stock exchanges. The Shanghai Stock Exchange, SSE, at $2.9 trillion. Shenzhen Stock Exchange, SZSE, $2.36 trillion. By the way, Shenzhen is one of my favorite places in China. I love Shenzhen. Shanghai, don't like so much, but it's, it's okay. But I don't really like Shenzhen. I mean, Shanghai so much. The Shanghai was the, the, the city. Actually, Shenzhen was the city I um, was staying in before I came back to the United States. I was in Shanghai previously, then went back to Shenzhen because I really liked it. Because um, I remember I had visited there before. Uh, and then I went back to Shanghai to fly out of there on Delta Airlines, which I really didn't want to. I wish I could have flew out of Shenzhen and just stayed there. It's such a beautiful port city. Okay, I digress. China has three stock exchanges. The Shanghai Stock Exchange, SSE, $2.9 trillion. Shenzhen Stock Exchange, SZSE, $2.36 trillion. Um, and the Stock Exchange of Hong Kong, SEHK, at $2.3 two trillion dollars which by the way guys if you don't know about the um BRICS summit that just happened and the uh whole mix up that's going around with the uh the u.s dollar being uh, at least um rejected in part by these different BRICS nations in favor of a different currency instead of the u.s currency being the reserve currency we'll see what's going to happen however you're not hearing a whole lot about it and i don't hear a lot of people talking about it but then again, I don't also watch a lot of media. London, UK. The London Stock Exchange, LSE, is Europe's largest at $2.68 trillion. The European, see, all of these are listed in, in, in dollars, right? That's going to change soon for perhaps uh, some of those BRICS nations, but we'll see. European Union. Euronext has headquarters in Amsterdam, Brussels, Lisbon, London, and Paris valued at $2.56 trillion. And Frankfurt, Germany. Deutsche Börse is based in Frankfurt, FWB, and $1.24 trillion. So, and it shows some stock exchanges here. Uh, London, New York, and Tokyo. Checking prices across markets. Traders check currency values and prices looking for variations across the markets. The global markets are closely connected and sharp rises or heavy falls in Asia or the U.S. may affect prices in London and the rest of Europe. Um, profiting. Large gains may be made by buying a share at a low price and selling it as it rises but before it peaks. Of course, that's called speculating and almost anybody should know that that's the way that you do anything to make money, right? That's how all the, that's the whole basis of it. Buy low, sell high, right? <laughs> what, what's, uh, Bob? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm ridiculous. Um, rogue trader. A trader who makes high-risk, speculative, unauthorized trades, usually financial. It's just so funny. It's like a, it's a dude with a trench coat on and his money is lined with currencies all over the world. And he's got one of those bandit masks on. Rogue trader, a trader who makes high-risk, speculative, unauthorized trades. Usually financial. I didn't know such a thing existed, but I like it. He's wearing a mask that looks like Robin from Batman and Robin. A rogue trader. I'm going to keep that idea in mind. Well, that's it. Um, I'm making my notes here for Wealth Attraction Research. Um, 
Bob, I don't know if you had any more input that you had. I really appreciate you hanging out here over on um, Holland and it's giving me some things to think about, which is always what I'm looking forward to learn some more. And, um, and also, let me just go take a look here who's on Wisdom and see. Hello, Marcy Ann, Ray, Andrew Johnson, Valencia Hartano, Martha Barsha, Lady Storm, Wandering Fool, uh, Cecilia Great, CH, Slime, o, Slime 063, Christopher Birkenbein, Zoe, The Sister Crystal Show, Cass, John, and Caleb Brown. Appreciate you all either passing through or sending a spell to listen. And you said with your, your boy Smith, awesome. Well, thank you, uh, everyone, for hanging out. It's much appreciated while I make my notes here and educate myself on all things wealth, money, economics, finance. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, titled Of the Rent of Land, from based on the title of Chapter 11 in The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, 1776, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander, on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc., and Call-In, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with Unequilibrium. Until next time, stay well.